That is Creature Clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. Roar! And open the door to join us for the 17th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm Elephant Trunk Scrubber Mike. I'm Snaggletooth Hell Ghost that haunts traffickers and poachers Meredith. And we meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. Bark! Bark! To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for in unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow. So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Hey, Mike. Hey, Meredith. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm also pretty good. Thank yeah? You. So a little birdie told me that this episode will be airing on your B-Day. That's true. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to you. Maybe there will be some birthday surprises embedded (laughs) in this episode. Oh, wow. All right. I'm ready for that. Don't resist. Enjoy. No, there's no resistance here. I'm a Pisces. I go with the flow. Oh, that's perfect. little forecasting there. Apparently. So um, how's your week in the animals been? It's pretty good. I encountered a sign outside of the Port Authority that said I'm not to feed the pigeons, so I did not feed the pigeons. I generally don't feed them either, but I do look upon them lovingly. There was a lot of poop, I have to say, around the signs that said, please don't feed the pigeons. Yeah, they're like, fuck you. Here's my excrement. Here's some shit for your shitty sign. That's so crazy. I've actually never seen those around New York. I'm surprised I don't see them more often. The north side of the Port Authority bus terminal, 42nd Street. Yep. Between 8th and 9th. Yep. They're I... green signs. See, those must be new because I've been there many times and I've never seen them. It was the first I'd remembered them, but okay. maybe I'm becoming more sensitive to class Aves. I would hope this podcast is doing that for a lot of people. I imagine that there is. I don't think there's any way anyone could listen to this and not be more of an Aves advocate. Our high school mascot was the aviator, so we were the Sycamore Aves. Oh. So when we had an environmental science, when we had like our Aves unit, I was like, wait, what? Oh, class Aves and aviators. Yeah, you were getting into some root word. Yeah, it was great. Some etymology. It was perfect. As opposed to entomology. Right. That's bugs, right? Right. Cool. So we're actually recording this, sorry to pull back the curtain on our process, but recording this a little early, so the 16th of February, which means that yesterday, February 15th, was a day I've actually mentioned was coming up, World Pangolin Day. Remember I did my report on our scaly little anteater friends, the pangolins? I do remember, and I've seen a lot of pangolin YouTube uh, content, one might say. And I actually saw a picture of that suit of armor that's made out of the pangolin skin. Yeah, it was like for one of the... George, King George's. Sure. It was really scaly. It was super scaly. And that had to have been at least 20 pangolins. At least. And of course, when that was happening, there would have definitely been no eye towards, man, this was a really horrible thing to do to these creatures. No, they would have been killing them and skinning them right there. Right, right, of course. But think about our sweet little pangolins. I mean, it is just a day, but get the word out. Get a pangolin t-shirt. Yeah. Let's be pangolins for Halloween. Ooh, that would be a hard costume. So get started now if you want to be a pangolin for Halloween. I think that's definitely really good advice. Yeah. If you want to be a pangolin for Halloween, I think eight months lead time on the conception, fabrication, and adjustments needed to your costume. I think that's a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. Something you definitely would need a sewing machine. You would definitely need to put in a lot of time and a lot of planning into how you're going to fashion those scales, how you're going to attach them to what I would say would probably a onesie would work. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I'm actually already the, the motor is already spinning in my mind as to how I can make this happen. Where are you going to get all that keratin? You know, I'd have to um, make some modifications. I think keratin in this case might end up being felt as, you know, all Halloween costumes want to be. Felt is a process. I don't know if you knew that. To felt? I Apparently. Felt is a process. Oh. You can felt various materials. Okay. Would that mean just kind of like roughing it up in a way to like bring forth the fibers? I'm not the felt expert, 
No. But I've heard from people who have researched felt more thoroughly than I have. Yeah. That felt is a process. Okay. Which I just like as an ethos, even though I don't I know. actually know anything <laughs> also about it. Also, the way you said that into the mic, felt is a process. That just seems like a like an edict on your life. Yeah, it felt like I was <laughs> declaring something. <laughs> now I'm curious. I got to find out about felt. How was your week in animals, Meredith? Well, other than World Pangolin Day, I think it was pretty normal. So just various funny videos on YouTube or Instagram or whatever. But I totally got hoodwinked by an Instagram photo. So somebody in the palm of their hand was holding what they had in the caption is a newborn platypus. And it was this cute thing. Super cute. Meredith, I I have a little bit more information about felt. It can be made of natural fibers such as wool or animal fur or synthetic fibers or wood pulp based rayon, but it's a material that is produced by matting, condensing, and pressing fibers together. Whoa. Felt is a process. We may have seen, I actually didn't watch the video, but um, Jenny Any Dots and Bustopher Jones were on the Oscars last week. That's right. They were. Yeah, and I think they were nominated for a Razzie, at least one Razzie. I have to say that Bustopher Jones and Jenny Any Dots coming out, presenting the Oscar Award for Best Visual Effects, is very, very, very funny. Yes. And I thought that that was a very funny thing to do, and I'm very glad that they did that. Yeah. I mean, we should just embrace the joke now. Yeah, it's a camp classic, I'm telling you. Already. It's going to have a very long life in very small circles. Yes. There are these showings, they're called like the rowdy showings at some theater in Brooklyn, which I would totally go to. That sounds hilarious. Yeah. I would totally do that. Well, let's kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Yeah, let's do it. Ready? Okay. Taxana you. Taxana we. Taxana who? Taxana V. Kingdom. Animalia. You know them and love them. Phylum. Cordata. Vertebrae. Hey. Class. Actinopterygy. Ray finned fishes. Order. Persiforms. They're perch like. Family. Anarchicotidae. Ow. Bloop, bloop. Genus. Anarchophies. Check out them chompers. Species. Anarchophies. Ocelotus. Because it's Mike's birthday, I'm doing a wolf eel. That's very sweet of you, Meredith. Oh, <laughs> wolf like, eel. Because I didn't want to go like full wolf because I kind of feel like maybe you should save the wolf for your own time. Sure. Like you should do it. Yes, I appreciate that. Because you love your wolves. I know this. Yes. These guys are nuts. Okay, so I'm just going to preface this with saying that if you can picture like the Stadler and Waldorf Muppets... Uh-huh. Those are the critics in the yeah, theater. Yeah, those are like the old men. And particularly the one that's like has the bigger eyes. He's got the more like elongated face. Like the taller one? Yes. He looks like a wolfy eel. Cool. So they're very strange looking. And guess what? Creature value judgment alert. These are not true eels. These are not true eels. They are not. These are actually a kind of fish. Crazy. So there's actually other fish called wolf fish. So the Anarchidae. Ow, bloop, bloop. It's a wolf fish. I, you know, I will say that I was really trying to find in my research, like what exactly distinguishes a wolf fish or a wolf eel from an actual eel. And I think I want to say that it's mostly in terms of if you look at a wolf eel, you kind of have a normal sized fish at the front part of their body. Uh And then it's like you took like, say this fish is made of like, silly putty or something and you like so you form the normal size of a fish so they kind of look like a perch sure whereas the parasiforms comes from and say you took like the tail and just kind of like stretched it out oh like a taffy moment yeah yeah like a stretchy taffy moment so whereas like true eels are gonna be like uniform across their body so it's not like there's kind of like a fish shape at the front end they're just long, really long, elongated fish through and through. Sure. If that makes sense. Other than that, like, there were some other distinctions about, say, true eels. Well, essentially, their dorsal fin, so the fin that runs along their back, and their anal fin, which run, runs along their bottom side. Right. Their ventral surface. and up By to their the, cloaca. Yeah. The caudal fin, they all kind of combine. So it's almost like from top. Around their bottom, they're all just kind of one, like, elongated fin, Hmm. which is actually what you see on the wolf eel as well. 
So I just couldn't really figure out, like, you know, in terms of the fins, what the difference was. But just go with it. <laughs> I'm here for it. So the class. So we've got Kingdom, Animalia, Phylum, Chordata, obviously. And then the class is Actinopterygy. So those are ray-finned fishes. So those are 99% of all fishes. So their fins are essentially just like kind of like a membrane. But within that, there's going to be spiny things that create the ray of it. Bone-like moments. Yeah. Like kind of like a thwarpy fan. Sure. Exactly. It kind of looks like the boning of a fan will look like the boning of a of a ray-finned fish's fan. Okay. The, I guess counterpart to that that isn't that's the one percent of fish they're like nodular fins or lobal fins i think is what it is there is more of a lobal structure so they'll be like kind of like a fleshy thing with like one bone in it if that makes sense yes i've seen lobal fins because i was watching some documentaries about like fish swimming from the water and climbing up on the land Mm -hmm. and they were saying lobal fins were good for that because it allowed them to get the power to get up on the land that makes yeah that makes sense i feel like you would have a hard time getting that power with just these very thin spines that you'd find in a ray finned fish Mm. so actually this is interesting i think this is right but what it was saying is that these ray finned fish it's like the most populous class of all the vertebrates there's more families subsumed within the class of ray-finned fish than there are any other families within a particular class of other vertebrates. Whoa. So they're like the beetles of the vertebrates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. And then also when we get down to order of the Persiform, so these perch-like fish, that sure. is actually one, it's like the biggest order of vertebrates, accounting for 41% of all fish. That's remarkable. Yeah. So we've got like some really heavy hitting class and order accounted for here. But then when we get down to like family, so these wolf fish, the family of wolf fish, not so big, not so big at all. It gets a lot more specific when we get to wolf fish. Okay. But then when we get into genus, the wolf eel is the only species within this genus. Huh. So it's a monotypical genus. I feel like I've been encountering some of those lately. Where yeah. Like three or four rungs on the taxonomy ladder. <laughs> the taxonomy ladder are the same, you yeah. know? Yeah, totally. It's, again, I think it's showing some, maybe some of the limitations of this method. Also, I, I think I just heard recently that Carl Linnaeus is actually like a complete like eugenics or classified like humans or like races of humans in a hierarchical structure as well. I mean, probably. It makes sense. It's like Europeans of that time period. Anyway, we'll talk about that another time. I learned that on an episode of Poldark. PBS Masterpiece. Hey! Work, PBS Sponsor Masterpiece. Sponsor us. Okay, so not a true eel, blah, 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 blah. So these guys live in, um, so from the Sea of Japan to the Bering Sea, like all the way into Northern California oceans. Whoa. Um, and so... Now that we know roughly where they make their homes, we can talk about wolf eels at home. Okay. Take me there. These couples. So couples of wolf eels are known to be monogamous. And they're actually um, known to share a cave for, you know, all of their lives until they're evicted by a larger wolf eel or an octopus. So I'm just coming. I'm having this image of like, you know, landlord octopus comes up. He's got like a tie on and he uses one of his eight arms to like knock at the cave door and serve them the eviction notice. Out of, with one of his other eight arms. Right, right. He knocks with one, serves papers with another. Has a coffee mug and yet another. <laughs> right, and a pen. Cell phone. He's very busy. He is very busy. He needs all of his arms. And then, like, Larry and Diane, Wolf Eel, are, like, falling on hard times. They're like, where are we going to move? You know, it's a whole drama. And then they also have, like, 10,000 potential babies on the way because when women give birth, they lay up to 10,000 eggs. That's so many. It's so many eggs. So listen to what sexy time consists of. We're still talking Wolf Eels at home, right? Wolf. So the man will essentially put his head on the abdomen of Lady Wolf Eel, and then he wraps his body around her, and then she extracts her eggs, shoots them out, and then he fertilizes them as they come out. I, beyond that, I don't really know if I can answer any questions, because I have questions too. 
about how this works. Can you just repeat that one more time? So he lays his head tenderly on her abdomen, and then he wraps his body around hers. She extracts her eggs, and as they're extracted into the water, he fertilizes them. So I don't know if he, like, sprays something all over these eggs or, like, what happens. I don't know. It sounds like a beautiful dance. It does. The lumbata of the sea. It's adorable. And then they, so then the mommy will coil around the eggs, kind of form them into like a brood the size of a grapefruit. And then the man will coil around that. And then they form a, essentially like a double wolf eel protection zone around this group of eggs. I like that. Yeah. When it comes to what they eat, they love crunchy crunch stuff. So I've watched multiple videos of these guys like mowing down on like a full crab. There's no like breaking open crab legs oh. prior to eating. They will take these crabs and just go. Gom, 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 wow. gom. And they've got nutso teeth too. Like if you look at some pictures of them, they're just like <laughs> big teeth. So they've got these big conical teeth in the front to help them crunch and then pulverizing molars in the back. So they have a heterodont dentition. They have different teeth for different functions. Yes, they do. To use our vocab word from the Amazon, Amazon River, River Dolphin. Right. Swimming scrapes. Scrape squad. Scrape squad. <laughs> um, and so these guys are known to be, they're not very aggressive towards humans, but you would look at a face like that and assume like, holy shit, that thing is going to get me and it's going to rip me apart. Sure. Because they look very terrifying. I'll show you a picture momentarily. So um, I did read something about Humans maybe being like overreactive to them because they look so scary, but actually they've been known to take food from divers' hands, or even some will develop behaviors like swim up to divers because they know that often divers will have food for them. Uh huh. And there was one wolf feel in particular that I read about who did just that. So she was a young wolf eel, and I was reading this account from a diver who would, whenever the diver would come into the water, this wolf eel would kind of charge at her, but not aggressively, but just because often divers will have sea urchins for them. But guess what this wolf eel's name was? What? Wild thing. No way. Yeah. (laughs) I screamed when I read that. I was like, happy birthday, Mike. That is a birthday present that this wolf eel that you studied is has the same name as my wolf puppet from my childhood. Your beloved wolf puppet. Yes, beloved, who you've met. I have met. I love Wild Thing. He's great. Yeah. So let me just show you what these guys look like. And of course, I'll put this on Instagram. So this is a picture from Reddit. This wolf eel not giving a shit about eating a whole sea urchin. Wow. I think I've seen these wolf eels before. They're kind of like a chunky eel. And yeah, they this, are chunky. This one's really just has a whole sea urchin in his mouth, and he's just eating it. It doesn't mind at all. That's the wild thing life. That's that wild thing life, exactly. They don't give a shit. Oh, and I did say like these guys can get to like six to eight feet long. So they're big. Uh-huh. They're super big. So people make a big deal out of these guys always kind of mating for life, sharing a cave together. But there have been trios witnessed in the wild. Thruples? Thruples. That's exciting. Yeah. There's a little primer on your wolf fish for your birthday. Oh, well, thank you so much. That was really fun. You're welcome. They're fun. I, you know, I, I have to get over some like speciesism that I have towards particularly scary looking aquatic things like this they freak me out a little bit yeah i've definitely heard you use the term ugly fish to refer to like an entire category i guess of fish that kind of maybe look ugly to human eyes right but we're not here to project value judgments on these creatures you know absolutely not i'm growing i'm growing within this journey so actually after reading about them and kind of hearing how they like hang out in caves together and really care for their babies, how they're actually not very aggressive, despite looking like they could be. Mm. I have a soft spot in my heart now for the wolf eel. Oh, that's really nice, Meredith. Yeah, thank you. I have a question about all the wolf fishes. Sure. Are they all the same kind of pulled taffy stretched experience? Or... It doesn't seem like that. Okay. I think that's where the the eel misnomer comes in. Whereas like some of the other wolf fishes um, appear to be, I mean, they're longer, they're long boys. Sure. But not that like, they don't have that long tail in the same way 
that the wolf eel does. I see. And then my other question is, do you know, regarding this ray fin fish mm-hmm. situation, mm-hmm. would a cartilaginous fish be not ray finned is my guess? I would think not because sharks, for instance, I think have that lobal fin going on. Right. right. You can't really necessarily like, say you were to hold a light up to a shark fin. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to see these like the different articulated spines within that. I see. You know, like light wouldn't shine through it because it's more of like there's a single bone in there and then kind of all the um, flesh surrounding that bone in that lobe formation. OK, that's interesting. And then my next question is, can we just talk very briefly about that dress on the Oscars? That was the New Ireland stingery. We forgot to bring it up. In the I intro. know that was so perfect. I don't know what I was doing during the Oscars. I was definitely not watching them. And then the next morning it was all like, blah, 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 blah. And then I saw that come up on my Instagram, then your post about it. And I was like, what the heck? <laughs> so funny. Yeah, I just started laughing when I saw it. I was like, this is amazing. But it was literally, like, you could see the eyes, you could see the paired nares. The paired nares, yeah. And then the little, like, skin flaps. Pectoral disc. The pectoral fin discs. Pectoral fin disc. Thank you. That was, I wonder if that was indeed inspired by our Stingray friends. I think it might have been. From the house of Stingray. Work. Let's take a break. <laughs> Let's do it. Billy Waves here for Dome Foam, Brand Clubby's only melon shining mineral foam to keep your dome shined and primed. So would I be wrong in assuming that Dome Foam is specially formulated for our pals in the Cetacean Nation? You would not be wrong, Michelle. Indeed, Dome Foam is the only mineral foam made specifically for that mound of adipose tissue found in all of our toothed whale friends. But wait, Billy, what about the melons of our pink friends, the Amazon River Dolphins? I wouldn't want them to feel left out. I mean, life is hard enough when you are just one big swimming scab. Well, of course. The Amazon River Dolphin can use it too. Hold on though, Billy. What does Sheen and Shine have to do with the melon's role in echolocation? Does the dome foam serve a biological need or is it purely cosmetic? Oh, Michelle, what does a beehive updo or a perky ponytail or a long greasy rat tail have to do with protecting our brains? Not a damn thing. Brand Clubby's dome foam is simply about looking good you can have the confidence to echolocate the cutest beluga in the pod. Well, in that case, I'll take five buckets so I can share it with my whole cetacean squad. Don't be caught with a drab dome. Order yours today. Good evening. I'm Mike Luno. And I'm Meredith Jurgens. And this is Zooey Zooey. Meredith Jurgens takes us on a deep dive. Echinoderms exposed, a phylum in focus, a multi-part series exploring our echinoderm friends. This is a personal journey as much as it is an informational journey, as our loyal viewers will remember the lack of confidence and knowledge with which I attacked the subject that was the Arctic sea cookie. I do remember. Because I got very overwhelmed at what I was dealing with. So on Zooey Zooey, Echinoderms Exposed to Phylum and Focus, today we are going to talk about the reproductive habits of echinoderms. Yay. Yay. So let's recap here. Yeah, let's let's recap. Let's talk about, let's talk a little bit about the phylum that is echinoderms can do a little fun tax facts tax facts taxonomy facts the phylum of echinoderms contains 7,000 species so this makes this the second largest phylum after chordata okay and these are like star sea stars yeah so celebrities of this phylum include we've got sea stars We're going to not call them starfish, so forgive us if that does slip in, but I'm really trying to get away from calling these fish because they're echinoderms. They're definitely not fish. Totally different phylum. Totally different phylum, and that's, like, big. So we've got sea stars. We've got sea urchins. We've got sand dollars. We've got sea cucumbers, to name just four of the 7,000. Wow. So interesting thing about this phylum no representatives on land or in fresh water. So these are oceanic, saltwater-loving 
creatures. There are no echinoderms in fresh water. No. They're only in salt water? Only in salt water. Crazy. None on land. But they are very much represented in limestone formations in the form of their ossified skeletons. Ossified? Ossified. So hardened. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to see, so you might see like sand dollar fossils or sea star fossils or things like that. Their skeletons, because they're so spiny, they've got kind of these hard outsides. Sure. They become ossified into the limestone. That's different than being fossilized. I guess. So talk to me more about the reproductive habits of these echinoderms. Okay. This is where it gets a little tricky because you've got both sexual reproduction in some of these species and asexual reproduction in some of these species. Okay. So when it comes to sexual reproduction, we'll kind of start with what we know as chordata. Sure. Who in- do not engage typically in asexual reproduction that I know of. I don't, I'm not here to kink shame anybody. I don't right. know what's going on out there. And this is not, we're not trying to attack the asexual, aromantic no. community. We're just talking about in terms of reproduction. Right. This is strictly reproductive. This is nothing romantic. Affirmative. So most often fertilization will take place in open water. So both eggs and sperm will be released. And then sometimes this can actually be synchronized depending on the species with the lunar cycle. So there's just like something that stirs when it within both the, I guess, male and female species of whatever echinoderm we may be talking about. It's like the moon goes through its stages, something stirs within them, and all of a sudden, ah, you're releasing into the water. And it happens to be releasing around someone of the opposite sex. And then these things will co-mingle in the open water and then form new life. How about that for a deep dive? So scientific. I just have to say that it's actually a little less clear than it was before. You know, I'm sorry. But it does sound whimsical. It's very pagan. It's like they just kind of wait for the moon to do a certain thing and then they release all of their energy. I guess if you're trying to sync up with other sea creatures, maybe moon fullness is a good way of telling time and communicating. Absolutely. What phase of your moon cycle you're in. Sure. And I mean, on one end, this will actually happen with species of echinoderms that are so far underwater that no light is penetrating to that depth it will still happen with them some species interesting super interesting so it's not light dependent by any means in the same way that like well i don't know i can't speak to this but i will say as a lady there are certain lunar cycles that my body will go through monthly cycles sure but i don't know that that's necessarily like light dependent it's just monthly i don't know that's interesting yeah so how does the moon cycle of a lady human compare with the moon cycle of uh gender fluid echinoderm you know i was talking about my hashtag chordata guilt and how i just really don't know much about these echinoderms hence this expose and kind of feeling like you know i really need to expand my mind when it comes to how i can conceive of what creatures are capable of and how they go through their life missions and then their life systems that may or may not be similar to mine and i think we found a similarity that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, because for a while we were calling these alternative phylums, but now we've recognized that with our chordata privilege, yes, that we can't refer to them as alternative phylums because they some of them were here first. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh. Yeah, by a long shot. Yeah, definitely. And, for like sure. nematodes were surrounded by nematodes literally constantly. Right. Like anywhere anytime you're near the lithosphere, there's just nematodes everywhere. Everywhere. Tons under my fingernails as we speak. Once we've got these eggs, you you know, these fertilized eggs. So depending on your echinoderm at hand, so some starfish mommies, for instance, will hold them under their arms. Isn't that cute? That's adorable. And then some sea urchins will hold the eggs and cavities near their anus. Isn't that cute? Soup's cute. (laughs) So yeah, there's just like different, I was reading a lot about different ways that eggs are kind of stored. So similar to how birdies will kind of sit over their brood and of their hatchlings and kind of stay with it. These mommies too will keep their brood, their egglings close to their bodies and protect them. Sure. Until they hatch. That's great. So now we get into the crazy stuff in terms of asexual reproduction. I'm buckling up. Yeah, this is it's kind of blew my mind. So when we talk about asexual reproduction in the echinoderm phylum, this is going to often be applying to sea stars because what happens is they asexually reproduce through something called transverse fission, a.k.a. splitting into two. 
All right? Crazy. So we know how, say, sea stars, for instance, have the ability to regenerate their limbs, right? So, like, say a predator grabs a limb, they're able to essentially detach it. Right. And regrow a new one. Right. I remember that. So when, say, we do this thing, this sexy, sexy act of transverse fission, we've got that, like, porn soundtrack. Got this sea star, and they're just like splitting down the middle, and then they're gonna like regrow that part of their body that they split with. So from one, you get two. Isn't that insane? That's really great. So you can encounter essentially a sea star in the wild that is in any stage of fully reproducing after this fission, this break. So you'll see sea stars with like varying lengths of arms because they're in the process of like regrowing. And I did read that some, I guess, more young sea stars will asexually reproduce for a while before they go on to sexually reproduce later in their lives. Okay, so, so they this, do both. <laughs> they do both. So one individual can do both because this was a question that you had last time. Was it by species that they asexually reproduced? Was it some species did and didn't? But now it seems like one individual sea star of one species will start out by asexually reproducing, mm-hmm. and after a certain amount of time, will then switch over to sexual reproducing. Yes, I can't be specific in terms of species with this, but I know this is into sea star specificity. So I'm not sure. I don't remember where that breaks off like how far if um sea stars happen at the level of like order or class or i would say probably order uh-huh. crazy right so not all echinoderms are asexually reproductive but sea stars in particular have the ability to split themselves in two so from one we get two <laughs> tonight is the night that one becomes two <laughs> yeah. that spice girls song hot right totally hot yeah so that is our first segment our first installment of echinoderms exposed, a phylum in focus. Until next time, I'm Meredith Jurgens. And I'm Mike Luno. And that was Zui Z. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. I mean, like, obviously. Phylum. Cordata. Align that spine. Class. Mammalia. Hair, milk, live, birth. Order. Parasodactyla. Single-toed undulate squad. Family. Rhinoceroteridae. Rhino time. Genus. Ceratotherium. One of four extant genera. Species. Simum. The white rhinoceros. The largest extant rhino species. The rhino. It's rhino time. I love rhino. So the word rhinoceros is derived through Latin from ancient Greek. It's a combination of rhino, meaning nose, rhinoplasty. Yeah, (laughs) yes. And then charis, horn, because it has a no, it has a nose horn. Yeah, got a rhinoso charis. Yeah, rhinoceros. The collective noun for a group, if you get a group of rhinos together. So the term of venery. Yes. You could call them a crash <laughs> or a herd. Oh, I like crash. That's really crash. cute. I love terms of venery actually because they're so non-scientific and they're more literary in what people will do with them. It's so cute. I think it's like James Lipton of Inside the Actor's Studio. He either, like, he's an enthusiast about Terms of Venery or even has a book about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, he loves Terms of Venery. As do I. And that just means the plural of multiple animals, like mm-hmm. the murder of crow. Exactly. Murder would be a term of Venery. So, there are four extant genera. As discussed, we have the rhinoceros, which are the Indian and Javanese rhinos. Mm-hmm. We have Dicerorhinus, which is the Sumatran rhino. Okay. And then we have the two African rhinos, Geniara. Dicerotini is the tribe. So we have Caratotherium, Ceratotherium, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's our white rhinos. And then we have the Diceros, the black rhinos. So okay. Just a little rhino background information. Got it. The main difference between our white and black rhinos is the mouth. Actually, both of these rhinos don't have front teeth, which is really interesting. So they use their lips to retrieve delicious plant-based treats. 
streets. Oh. And the white rhino has broad flat lips because it grazes, whereas the black rhino has long pointed lips for eating foliage off of trees. Oh, so like giraffe-like almost. Almost, yeah. All other parasodactyla have front teeth, so it kind of separates them from their other single-toed undulate friends. Okay, so artiodactyla would be single-toed undulates? No, parasodactyla is single-toed undulates. No, I just was, I got stuck on the fact that it's pear. Sure, Cardiodactyla is multiple, is the even-toed undulates. Even-toed undulates. These guys are single-toed undulates. Yes. So like rhinos to peers and horses, like equests. Yeah. Those are the parasodactyla. And then other hoofed creatures. Ardeodactyla. Ardeodactyla. Including cetacean nation. Including cetacean nation. The whales and dolphins and everything. Yeah. No, it's great. (laughs) I'm obsessed with the undulates. Yeah, I know. I could tell. Like other parasodactyla, we have herbivores, hindgut fermentation. Mm-hmm. No word on the size of their seasome. Uh-oh. But I bet you it is more than 34 liters. <laughs> I would think so. We have two subspecies of our white rhino. We have the northern white rhino, which is critically endangered and possibly extinct in the wild. Oh. There's this whole thing where there's like six northern white rhinos living in this zoo in the Czech Republic and four were sent to Kenya in the hopes that they would breed and save Mm -hmm. the subspecies. In 2015, Sunni, the last remaining male of the subspecies, was placed under 24-hour armed guard to deter poachers, but was put down on March 19th, 2018 of old age. So that's the last remaining male. And then there's two females, Najin, born 1989, and Fatu, born 2000. Mm. The New York Times reported on August 28th of 2019 that scientists have successfully fertilized seven of the 10 eggs that have been extracted from the two ladies, which is hashtag progress. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, considering our Oscars controversy, I guess we have to talk about Joaquin and his statement about artificial insemination of animals. But in this instance, it's being used to try and save a species as opposed to just to produce meat for us. Oh, right, right, right. Well, I think it when it's done in terms of conservation efforts. I would slap him if that's what he meant, banning it across the board unilaterally. That's crazy. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm putting definitely putting words in his mouth here. The southern white rhino, the southern square-lipped rhinoceros, which again, this is a subspecies. So this is Ceratotherium simum simum. Alternatively, this is the most common and widespread subspecies of rhinoceros. Okay. Estimation 17,500 to 21,000 in the wild. They're huge. The ladies are about 3,700 pounds. The dudes are about 5,000 pounds. Shoulder height between five and six feet. Wow. Whoa. Yeah, they are huge. They're, I would have never thought that. I mean, it's 5,000 pounds of just, you know, no, rhino. I mean, I know they're like hulking beasts, but I would never consider them being that tall. Sure. From their foot to shoulder, you said? That could be taller yeah. than me? So shoulder that's all height. leg? All leg, baby. That's crazy. Yeah, they're not much taller than their shoulders. Their shoulders, you know, it's like the, they don't have like a long neck. They kind of have like a, you know, football player neck. Right. With like a muscle bump because it's so fucking, <laughs> everything's so heavy. Yeah. I guess I just imagine them being more like a big ass pony size. No, they're much bigger than a big ass pony. <laughs> okay. Showing my rhino ignorance here. Yeah, your ignorance. <laughs> so we got two horns. We got the front one, which is longer than the back. Mm-hmm. The average length of the front one is 24 inches but it can be up to 59 inches. Are these teeth? Is this similar to a narwhal in that it's a tooth? No, it's keratin. It's a proper horn. Gotcha. A true horn. I don't know enough about horns to make a value judgment on this horn, (laughs) but I bet it's a true horn. Okay, that makes sense. The ladies' horns are longer but thinner, and the men's are shorter but larger. So dudes are rocking like a chode horn, (laughs) and the ladies are rocking like a sleek, modern, très modern. The southern white rhino lives in southern Africa, the countries of South Africa, Nambia, Zimbabwe, Kenya, and mm-hmm. Uganda. The rhino armor is made up of layers of collagen positioned in a lattice structure. Ooh. And there are no natural predators for adult white rhinos except humans humans of course because of their size and even the young rhinos are rarely attacked or preyed upon due to the mother's presence and their tough skin wow 
So like we could really channel the rhino sometimes when we're feeling a little bit thin skinned and we need to beef up our defenses. Yeah, you could for call for unkind words. Yeah, you could call on the collagen armor. Lattice. Yeah, the lattice collagen of the rhino. I'm gonna do that. I love channeling animal energies when I'm like facing certain challenges in my life. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Let's talk about rhino sex. Baby. So the ladies reach sexual maturity between six to seven years of age, but the males, it takes a little longer. Uh-oh. 10 to 12 years. Wait, wait, wait. Say that again? The ladies are ready to ca- have babies at six to seven years. Okay. And the men, it's 10 to 12 years. Wow. Those are some years of difference. Those are certainly some years of difference. Huh. I guess really what I have to take away from that is that Maybe it's that younger males just haven't learned responsibility yet. Right. Maybe these rhinos just need a little bit more time. Courtship is often a difficult affair. Oh, I bet it is. This is a little intense, but the male essentially chases after the lady and maybe like blocks the way of the female while squealing or wailing loudly. (laughs) If the lady's trying to leave, he kind of is a bit of a whiner. But when the female's ready to mate, she curls her tail and gets into a stiff stance during the half-hour copulation, (laughs) which I would just like to point out is like nearly 9,000 pounds of rhino just getting down and dirty. That's a lot. You need a very, very well-reinforced bed frame if you're going to get into that. Yeah, that's... Firm stance, indeed. After the half-hour copulation, the breeding pairs stay together for 5 to 20 days before they part and go their separate ways, which is kind of funny. It's like he sticks around just long enough to, I guess, make sure that nobody else tries to get busy. Maybe that's what it is. In human world, it's like you got to give her five minutes. So, you know, they're doing a little better than that. Yeah, and uh, the gestation period is a little longer than in a human, too. For the Mm -hmm. rhino, it's 16 months. Oh, wow. I did hear, like, the larger the creature, the longer the gestation, Mm. which I that rule definitely applies here. Yeah. Similar to elephants. Well, it makes sense because the rhino, the calves, a single calf is born, Mm -hmm. and it's 88 pounds to 143 pounds. Good Lord. Yeah, and they're kind of, like, unsteady and can't really walk for the first couple days. So they're giving birth to something the size of me. Well, this actually brings us to Ace Ventura 2. (laughs) I actually have never seen it. You haven't? No. Well, there's a scene where Ace Ventura is doing some sort of reconnaissance mission, so he gets some sort of mechanical rhinoceros. But the air conditioning system fails, spoiler alert, and he says such gems is sure is hot in these rhinos. And then he has to climb out of the rhino because he's going to die of heat stroke. But the I don't know, something happens where the door seizes or something. And the only way out is for him to kind of emerge from the hole in the rubber, like in the anus region of the rhino. Ugh. So it cuts to somebody outside and it looks as if the rhino is giving birth, but to a human. Well, that checks out. Yeah, I'd say Jim Carrey's probably about a hundred. 143 pounds. Maybe a little more. He's a good deal taller than, say, me. Yeah, that's fair. So when threatened, the baby will run in front of the mother, and the mom's very protective and will definitely fight you over the calf. Yeah. They start weaning at about two months, but it can probably still suckle until like 12 months, and the birth interval is two to three years, so they take a little Mm -hmm. bit of time off. And they live to be about 40 to 50 years old. Before giving birth to the new calf, the mother will chase off the old calf. Where does it go? Into the wild. It's like two or three years old by that time. Okay. I mean, I can't get upset. It's nature. This is how this works. But my question is, do these rhinos, are they solitary? Are they social? Do they live in, you know, how big is a crash of rhinos? So when a calf is chased away, does it have to go hook up with another crash? You know, I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't know what the typical crash size is. Hmm. We're opening a line of inquiry here into the typical crash size. of. Yeah. The conservation story for this particular creature is pretty fun. They were really at the edge of extinction in the early 20th century. In 2001, there were estimated to be 11,670 white rhinos in the wild with 777 in captivity. And by the end of 2007, which was only six years later, the population had increased to an estimated 17,500. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of seen as a star of the conservation. I love that. Yeah. I'm not sure what species is represented again. I'm so, I'm not going to apologize. I just really want them as a sponsor. Cincinnati Zoo, holler at your girl. Actually, they have had some success in the most recent years with having lady rhinos giving birth, which is hard to do apparently in captivity. Uh It's not an easy process. It's kind of like pandas, you know, maybe not that difficult. So it was actually not long after Fiona the hippo was born and unfortunately I think she greatly overshadowed the birth of the rhino kid Kendi. Kendi? Kendi the rhino. Aww. Yeah, so super cute but it was a success story and Kendi's I'm not sure what Kendi is up to these days or you know if they've taken Kendi to another zoo or what's going on but that was like a major deal that Kendi was born in captivity and unfortunately overshadowed by another huge animal and captivity birth success story with Fiona the hippo. But regardless, I just wanted to give a shout out to Kendi at the Cincinnati Zoo. Hope you're doing great. You're super cute. Yeah, we just got to find out where Kendi got chased off to. Yeah, or maybe not at all. But I do wonder if like in zoos, like how do they handle something like that? That biological function or drive, do they just take them away at a certain point, take them to another zoo in hopes of mating with another virile rhino? I don't know. Virile no. Virino. Cool. Well, I guess let's take a break. Yeah. Thanks for that. That was great. It was rhinotastic. Seriously. Hey, Linda, what's happening? Not much, Florence. Just waiting on this blade of grass for my next food source to walk by. I know that life, Linda. One time I was waiting so long, I lost track of time and missed my baby seat ticks dance recital. I felt like such a doofus. Well, Florence, sounds like you need TikToks, the new made for ticks watch line from Brand Clubby. Wow, a watch on my Tarsus? I feel even more like the human whose blood I rely on for my sustenance. And how? Brand Clubby offers a variety of fashion options so you can stay chic and punctual. This sounds like it really fulfills a need I have and was heretofore unaware of. Oh, Florence, that's a Brand Clubby difference. They are always anticipating the needs of all kinds of fauna. Shh, Linda, I see a delicious blood meal approaching. It's dinner time. We've gotten back into this feed bag. I can't see anything. It's so dark. And it smells like oats. Uh-oh. Might as well make the best of it while we're here. Well, um, Freddie from Pensacola asks, Come up with fun terms of venery for the following animals. I'm going to give you the first one, Mike. A blank of harbor seals. A schooner of harbor seals. Fun. I like that. Just to recap, Meredith, a term of venery is that's the name for the group, right? Like yeah. a murder of crows yes. or a crush of rhinos. Yes. Next up from Freddie, we have a blank of warty comb jellies. A vacuum pack. Hmm. Kind of like that. <laughs> I can't justify it, but it's what popped into my head. Yeah, the sea walnut, a vacuum pack of sea walnuts. Yeah. That's kind of nice. Yeah, okay. Here's the next one from Freddie. A blank of mealworms. A buffet of mealworms. So good. I mean, I teed you right up for yes, that. Thank you, Meredith. Okay, now we have a blank of Arctic sea cookies. A bake sale. That one's perfect, Meredith. <laughs> Great. Okay, so to recap, we have... A schooner of harbor seals. A vacuum pack of warty comb jellies. A buffet of mealworms. And a bake sale of Arctic sea cookies. That's our fish position. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, 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 ding. Great question, Freddie. Yeah, thanks, Freddie. We like that a lot. All right. Cherie from New Jersey asks, what's the difference between a sugar glider and a flying squirrel? Oh, wow. Cherie, that's a great question. And um, I'd love to answer that for you. So one lives in Australia, our sugar glider. Okay. Lives in Australia. And the flying squirrel doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) I forget where flying squirrels live. So they're both essentially little rodents that fly. 
have that membrane that stretches between their feet and their arms and they glide and they actually look very similar as well, but they're not related. They're like very, 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 very distant cousins. Interesting. Yeah, but they're very similar. So I think that's a version of, or a, an example of what's called like convergent or divergent evolution or something like that, where essentially you have two creatures that didn't evolve together or not in the same species or anything like that develop similar traits. Okay, I think that's convergent evolution. Is it? Okay, If cool. I'm remembering right. So that's the fish position. I mean, it's just... Yeah, ding, 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 ding. ding. Oh, an international question. So Georgette from Paris asks, mate, pair, feed upon, cereal mascots edition. So we've got Tony the Tiger. We've got Toucan Sam of Fruit Loops fame. We've got the Trix Rabbit. Mate, fair, feed upon. Mate, pair, feed upon. Mate, pair, feed upon. That's very hard. This is a hard question. It's tough. We have Tony the Tiger. Yes. Trix the Trix Rabbit. Yes. And Toucan Sam. Yes. Okay. I think in terms of life partner, I feel like Tony the Tiger is probably the best for that. He's got a cute bandana. I mean, he's muscular. He's great. Yeah. Um, also, I would feel really bad about, like, eating a tiger because they're very endangered. Yeah. Right? Especially a talking tiger. Yeah. So we should definitely... I don't know, pair. Yeah, pair. I think pair with Tony the tiger. And then I guess that leaves Toucan Sam and the Trix Rabbit. Mm. I guess that an argument for the Trix Rabbit for mating is that, you know, rabbits, rabbits, right? Say no more. But then an argument for feeding upon the rabbit is all the delicious things that one could do with rabbit meat. Exactly. Stews. Stews, yeah. Cutlets? Sure. Rabbit cutlets, probably. (laughs) I don't know anything about cooking rabbit. I just think stew. Welsh rarebit? I don't know. I don't think that's even rabbit. I don't know. I think that preparing a toucan would be a lot of work. Like, you'd be defeathering. You have that beak. What do you do with the beak? Yeah, there's not much meat there, really. Probably. I don't think so. They're not super big birds. They're, they're big birds. They're mostly beak. They're mostly beak. Okay. I mean, I would go with pair with Tony the teeth mate with the toucan because again he has a name meredith toucan sam (laughs) with that paper bag i put on him i just i never know you could use a cardboard cereal box from a competing brand yeah (laughs) for like cinnamon apple crunch or something yeah totally um and then i would uh feed upon the tricks rabbit we are in agreement meredith yeah a fish position ding 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 ding. keep them coming animalfanclubpod at gmail.com we love it Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting.